Mobile workforces, cloud applications, and digitalization are changing every aspect of the modern enterprise. And with radical transformation come new business risks. Welcome to Hybrid Identity Protection, the premier podcast for cybersecurity pros charged with defending hybrid identity environments. Presented by Semperis, the pioneers of identity-driven cyber resilience for the hybrid enterprise. And now, here's your host, 15-time Microsoft MVP and Active Directory security expert, Sean Duby. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the HIP Podcast. This episode of the podcast is an excerpt from a web seminar that I presented along with Brian Desmond, principal of Ravenswood Technology Group, about the top things you can do as an organization to lower your risk of an AD-focused cyber attack. In this session, we cover implementing good identity processes, ensuring that you review your trust settings to close security gaps, planning and testing your Active Directory recovery process, checking Kerberos security settings, and finally, deterring lateral movement. These are just a handful of the tips provided in the seminar. In a later session, we'll present the other guidelines Brian and I discussed. So with that, let's pick up the conversation with our tips for lowering your Active Directory cyber attack risk. So starting with the first one here, uh, and this is, and I should say, a lot of this is not necessarily going to be brand new to you. Uh, so if, if repeating helps you get it done, then that's great. And this one is about identity processes or what I like to think of as identity life cycle. In all the organizations I talk to, and I talk to organizations as small as uh, law offices and as large as big multinational companies. And for everybody, provisioning is easy. Getting users out there, getting them added to groups, you know, making new computers, joining the domain, all that, that's easy. The hard part is the back end of that is removing those that no longer need to be there. And I have that here specifically is removing inactive users and inactive computers. But it is about, I mean, that also applies for groups. I mean, if you went out and I'm sure you've gone out and added how many thousands or tens of thousands of groups uh, are sitting there in Active Directory, this accumulation of cruft. It's really attack surface, right, Brian? It's its vulnerability surface. This aspect, this is pretty straightforward, removing inactive users. Let's look for, you know, you can do this with PowerShell. There are lots of utilities out there that will surface a lot of this for you. So this is relatively easy to accomplish by looking at the uh, inactive users and removing inactive computers. Sensitive access, you know, this is a broad attack surface for you to look at. So if you have to focus, if you have to focus an area to uh, really try to tighten up, it is the sensitive aspects of that. In other words, your privileged groups, the one, this is where you will spend the most time looking at security. We'll talk about administrative tiering a little bit later, but the, you know, the, you really want to try to keep uh, administrative access and administrative control separate from everything else and review it on a regular basis, even um, or especially for in terms of governance. So when I say that, I mean regularly review access, just like we talk, just what we're saying here. Set something, doesn't have to be a high-tech package. It can be, it can be a calendar setting where you have time set aside to go and walk through every administrative user and go to their manager and just review that, in fact, it is really necessary again. 
The third one, and I'm curious about Brian's take on this as well, is service accounts. So one of the most common ways of hacking Active Directory is something called Kerberosting. And historically, we set, you know, people set service accounts with some kind of a password and they forget about it and they literally forget ever what it is. But uh, Kerberosting has emerged in the last few years as a way to really attack Active Directory. Brian, when you do assessments and when you when you work with organizations, is that something that you tackle? Yeah, we absolutely see uh, challenges here. You know, there's lots of people that are thinking, "Hey, can I move to group managed service accounts?" You know, which have been out for a for a long time now. But the the work that's involved in you know revisiting things that have been set up the same way for years or even decades is is non trivial. And as a result, there there's always more work than there is time, and priorities have a way of getting in. Uh, getting in the way. But certainly, if nothing else, you know, having processes that actually rotate passwords for service accounts. And you know, I think more importantly, uh, making sure that those are only known by people that are supposed to know them as people leave the organization, transfer out of IT, that those change. And, you know, even today, we continue to see, uh, you know, the people that have a spreadsheet in IT of all the service account passwords. Well, hey, if I can just get to the spreadsheet, you know, a lot of my work is done. So, like you said at the beginning, some of this may seem like things you've thought of before, but it, it continues to be a lot of the uh, the basics that we still have to tackle. Yeah, I mean, I like to joke that uh, either everybody knows the service account password or nobody knows the service account password because the one that person that said it retired, you know, five years ago and everyone's afraid to change it. Yep, absolutely. All right. And uh, trusts are another one that, that pop up. You know, the, the, this concept has been around literally since since Windows NT. So we're going on, uh, you know, the better part of 30 years at this point that, that some of this hasn't changed. But it's also one of those points of exposure that folks forget about, right? Because it might not necessarily be in your face, but hey, there's another environment on the other side. Maybe it supports an application. Maybe you picked it up as part of a merger and that integration work never, uh, never completed as is uh, often the case. Um, and if someone can uh, potentially compromise that uh, that environment on the other side of the trust, they might be able to walk across it and, and do things that you wouldn't like in uh, what you might consider your, your main production environment. So obviously there's, you know, just not looking tactically, but holistically, if you have more than one AD environment, especially if they're connected with trust, you can't can't neglect the other ones that are uh, that are out there. And you know, like I said, a lot of times we see these come about with, with mergers and acquisitions and so forth, and lots of stuff is picked up, and it has a way of falling by the wayside as it's kind of dwindling and hopefully dying on the pine, but that can take a uh, take a really long time. You know, tactically, there's things like SID filtering that uh, that's there to, to prevent potentially impersonation of a privileged uh, or sensitive group across a trust. That should uh, pretty much always be enabled unless you're actively doing something like a domain migration. Sometimes you need to turn it off. But that's also a great example of where, hey, we turned it off to support that migration. That migration finished years ago, and we forgot to uh, we forgot to clean that up. Yeah, there's the lifecycle thing again. Yep. Um, selective auth is another one. That one's a little harder to uh, to turn on, but um, that actually makes it so that uh, only certain people can actually cross the trust. So if, hey, we, we really only need uh, folks in a certain department or certain group to actually be able to use resources across the trust, we can greatly restrict uh, restrict that access from everyone on either side to uh, to just a small bucket of people. Yeah, that's easier. That's certainly easier to do when you're first setting up the trust than when it already exists. I think of selective authentication. First set up a forest trust by default, 
Well, not by default. It's a choice that you make. The default choice is allow everybody through the forest trust. Essentially, it's fully open. And selective authentication is reversed. You have to explicitly grant uh, certain uh, security principles to be able to go across uh, across the trust. So, yeah, it is as in anything. And the way we go in the security is you have greater security, but then there's greater friction and greater um, greater burden. Uh, backup and recovery. This should be pretty standard uh, thought by now, but there's some of the details in here are important if you don't if you don't get it right, because I assume if you're on this call, you recognize that Active Directory isn't just any any other application. It's it has definitely its own its own unique requirements. Obviously, let backup every domain controller for every domain that you have. And especially the root domain. If you back up domain controllers and other domains and you don't back up the root domain, you will not be able to recover your forest. There are uh, partitions uh, in the root domain that have to be backed up and have to be recovered. So if you have a, if you have a root and child domain configuration, as many organizations do, especially organizations that have been around since 2000, between say 2000 and 2005 or later, um, or earlier rather, um, you're probably going to, they, a lot of them have an empty root or a root configuration. Backup two, to, two DCs per domain. Okay. Check this off on your checklist. Remember, cause you don't want to have to depend on one instance of a backup to determine whether or not you can restore an entire domain or even the entire forest. So, uh, a, a friend of mine recommends that you back up three domain controllers in the root domain, just because it's so important. You have to get that one back. And how much, much, how much more effort is it to back up one more DC in the root domain? Of course, uh, backups are all very well and good, but they're not any good if you can't recover from them or if you don't know how to recover from them or if the procedure that you think you have in your head but isn't really written down anywhere uh, doesn't work the way you thought it did. We did a survey um, a couple of years ago, and... We found of a we surveyed a couple of hundred companies of varying sizes from small to very large, and we found that over fifty percent of organizations either had no disaster recovery plan at all or backup and recovery plan, or they had never tested it. So please go test your recovery scenarios because given what we're seeing in the environment today, uh, the 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 needs of having a solid recovery plan are ever greater and for your own peace of mind because you don't want to have to figure this out on you don't want to have to figure this out uh, on thanksgiving weekend or on black friday which is i'm sure the bad guys will be hitting uh without having this already written down ahead of time and when you do that make sure that you use supported backup methods so that means methods that use the vss writer uh, to back up Active Directory the way it expects to be backed up in a Microsoft-supported manner. So snapshots or checkpoints don't count. Now, number one, Act Microsoft does not officially support that. Number two, though AD can handle it, it doesn't mean it likes it. Uh, it, it Active Directory under the covers performs a bunch of maneuvers to make sure or to do the best it can to ensure that it, it will not get broken in terms of USN rollback and lingering objects. Um, 
but it is taking snapshots is not a a backup uh, is not a backup strategy. Obviously, you want to ma- make sure that the backups are malware free, which is a real challenge when you do conventional backups. Because the way I like to think of it is Active Directory is a role that is sitting on top, and the role may be in small organizations, maybe not very large, sitting on top of an operating system that has a minimum of 20 gigs worth of data and files out there. That's where the malware is going to be sitting. And if you find yourself on a malware attack, the odds are very good that malware will be sitting in your backups for some period of time. It doesn't just appear and they trigger it. Usually that's one of the last things to happen is is detonate, detonating the malware. The stuff that we're seeing too, especially in terms of ransomware and encryption, involves an area that I think a lot of people have not spent as much time in, which is offline storage and different methodologies for offline storage. Brian, do you, when you talk to your customers about having secure backups, what do you recommend to them for offline storage? Yeah, I mean, we're starting to see whether it's uh, in like it kind of write once, read many type uh, cloud storage scenarios or even mm-hmm. just, you know, old fashioned uh, offline storage. You know, that's, I think, an important part of the uh, uh, important part of the process these days since, you know, malware and ransomware can spread, you know, throughout an environment. We've definitely seen more than a few instances where we've uh, been there to, to try and help recover. But, hey, the, the backup recovery tools have been encrypted as well, um, <laughs> which uh, makes them not, not quite as useful. You know, I have a friend that has one of those crazy stories that you'd think, you know, was being made up, but, you know, finding the the last uh, offline copy of something on a hard drive that was, uh, you know, halfway into the grave and actually getting on a plane on like a Saturday night to uh, to fly it to some company that was going to repair the thing uh, in time to uh, to hopefully recover it, you know, before uh, before Monday morning. So, you know, these sorts of uh, these sorts of crazy things happen. I've never been involved in, um, so literally just yesterday, I was having conversations with a very large consulting company. And by that, I mean, like large with a capital exclamation point L. And they were talking about using Iron Mountain and tape backups as one of their particular offline mode. And I've never really worked with that sort of a scenario uh, up up close and personal. So I'm not familiar with what some of the details are, but I'm reminded there's a, this is a little anecdote since we're telling anecdotes there's a there's an old book called uh, computer networks by andrew s tannenbaum a real sort of a seminal work and in it he has a quote that says never underestimate the bandwidth of a station wagon full of tapes hurtling down the highway <laughs> so when you're trying to recover data in a hurry it's high bandwidth time is of the essence whatever is the fastest way of getting it pulled back yeah, and I think I mean the only other thing I'd add here is you know, yes, testing uh, testing backups and making sure they work and all that is uh, is important, but also just uh, hey, like is everybody prepared? Have you been through the exercise and uh, and so forth? You know, one of the things we've been doing is doing kind of these tabletop exercises with. Uh, with some of our customers where we actually walk through that in an isolated environment and everybody gets to to try the process out. And a lot of times mm-hmm. that can be pretty eye-opening as well about, you know, dependencies and so forth that you didn't think of. Yeah, and we kind of touched on uh, some of the things around Curb, but uh, as you talked about, like Curb roasting attacks and so forth. But um, I think this is another one that's gotten uh, gotten a lot of attention over the past couple of years that, you know, all these issues have kind of been uh, been around, but not necessarily uh, something that people have been thinking about or certainly as, as some of these capabilities that are now being exploited 
uh, when they were, you know, built or uh, invented, if you will, decades ago, nobody thought about, well, hey, what what is someone gonna gonna do with this? And you know, to that end, so every AD force has this this disabled account called Curb TGT, um, and that's actually super important in that the the password on it is used to uh, as part of the encryption and signing process for every Kerberos ticket or TGT that's issued in uh, in your domain, and that TGT is kind of that proof of uh, proof of identity, that the driver's license, if you will, that you get when you uh, you sign in. It's good for a good for a period of time, and and it's who you are, what groups you're in, and it's your way to get other Kerberos tickets to access other s- services on the network. So of course, if I get a copy of your TGT, well, it's only good for a certain period of time, but I can use that to go get access to, to other things on the network. But what's even worse is what if I could make my own TGTs without uh, talking to the uh, talking to the domain? I can be anyone I want, anytime I want. Uh, and so sometimes you'll hear that called something like a golden ticket attack. Uh, as you think back to you know Willy Wonka and the and the chocolate factory, much in uh, much in the same way. Um, but part of the way that happens is if someone can capture the password to that that curb TGT account. Um, so one of the defensive things we can do is actually reset that password every now and again. Here we say do it annually. Some people say do it every six months, but uh, certainly doing that at least once a year. Um, and actually having to do it twice is uh, just due to some of the plumbing of how AD works um, is is super important. And not necessarily an exercise people have been through, and it can be a little scary because there's potentially some impacts there. But it's just something you know from kind of a good housekeeping perspective that you've got to do. Yeah, yeah, Brian. There's, um, there's actually, if you do us, you know, we couldn't really, uh, not, not so easy to put URLs in the presentation. But if you do a search for Curb TGT account password reset script, Microsoft has a reset script on GitHub that is sort of a multi-stage PowerShell script, and the help, the help in it describes uh, how it works and how to use it. Uh, as, as he said, you know, it, it's not something you're it's not something on a Wednesday afternoon at 2 p.m. You think, oh, yeah, I'll just let me, that's a good idea. Let me just go run it right now. You want to plan for it a little bit. Yeah. And speaking of planning, there's actually uh, there's kind of a rash of uh, security fixes around AD that came out uh, this past week or so from uh, from Microsoft. And some of those plug some uh, some potential holes with with how Kerberos works and some other bits and uh, bytes with AD. Um, so while those. Uh, certainly, you're going to get installed as part of Windows updates and everything, because you know everybody's doing that. I'm sure. Uh, there's actually a, a schedule where you know those are going to go kind of from an audit mode today, where you can see if they're potentially impacting things, to an enforced mode uh, over the next six months or so. So, uh, so this uh, coming summer. Um, so you definitely want to read the uh, read the KB articles that uh, that come with those those patches and make sure you understand what's happening. And if if you want to. Ad- uh, advance the schedule for when that enforcement happens. You can do that as well. But you know, spins or service principal names are part of how the the Kerberos process works. I want to access something on the network. I want to access a file share uh, that has a spin that starts with CIF, CIFS slash and then the name and so forth. I want to access a SQL server. It starts with MS SQL server slash and the name of the server. Um, and that, that's how AD knows what to give you a, a ticket to get access to. Um, that process can be can be abused actually if you get enough of those tickets. There's a way to use that to to derive passwords and so forth. Which then, of course, if you have that credential, you can uh, uh, go forth and uh, and be that account or be that person. 
Um, so one thing we see sometimes is that spins get registered to privileged accounts. Often that happens accidentally. People don't even know it's happened. Maybe it's been there for a decade. Uh, other times it's intentional, but also not a good thing um, because that same process where you can abuse it to uh, to potentially get a get a password can be abused to get a password to an administrative account. So when we see that, hey, you need to uh, you need to not do this. Um, and along the same line of not doing it is is unconstrained curb delegation, which Sean, I'm sure you've seen and you know, might remember from from your days of uh, you know, Windows 2000, for example. That was your only option uh, before you know, Windows 2003 came about. Of course, we're we're talking about that um, you know 20 years later, but the fact of the matter is those uh, those options are still there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the 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 gist behind on you, you may have heard of. Constrained delegation versus unconstrained delegation. And unconstrained delegation basically gives uh, a service on a server, and this is what we're talking about, a service on a server to act on behalf of a user that is coming in and using the service. And unconstrained delegation means it can act on, as, on behalf of the user for any service that, for example, let's say it's a, a user comes into an IIS website and you have unconstrained delegation uh, configured or you don't have constrained delegation configured, and then that service can access anything, any other service that is on that server. If if a threat actor has put some malware on there or has otherwise taken control of some aspect of that service, that means that they can now further escalate their in, involvement in the organization. Constrained delegation essentially says you can only do this to a single service. You can't to a designated one service in there, not to not to anything else. The SPNs, yeah, so I can I can tell you that our organization has been involved in uh, some breach response activities and and they have found in the environment SPN spins assigned to like administrator, which makes it uh, about a two-step jump to get domain dominance when you have spins associated to administrator. And I can see it being accidental because uh, configuring spins always gave me a rash trying to get it right. Uh, I never really got to where I where I felt really good about that, so I could easily see somebody accidentally doing that. Lateral movement. One of the hallmarks of the attacks nowadays are is lateral movement through the domain or through the forest, gaining access to uh, to a client, gaining control of the client, doing horizontal reconnaissance, and then moving horizontally or laterally across different uh, computers uh, within the domain or within the forest. One of the common TTPs for this is to use local administrator on a workstation. So in an IT, if you deploy computers to uh, clients, to a bunch of people, and you leave local administrator to the same password, for example, because it's just too difficult to manage all the different passwords. You don't want to do it in an Excel spreadsheet or something like that. Uh, so local administrator has the same password everywhere. If a threat actor gains a hold of that password, they can immediately jump all across the organization. So years ago, Microsoft came out with LAPS, Local Administrator Password System, which is a means of generating unique passwords for each local administrator account and then storing them in Active Directory and protecting them by access control lists. So just people that need to see them can get to them. So if you haven't implemented LAPS, you need to look into it because it's, it's very, very well established 
not that difficult to deploy and will greatly reduce the chance of lateral movement in your organization. And uh, speaking of local administrators, do you know what's in your local administrators group on all your servers and all your PCs? Brian, you mentioned when we were talking yesterday uh, what sort of things you've seen in local administrators before. I, I don't remember what it was. Yeah, so, you know, deploying laps is something that we see, you know, large majority of our customers doing. Uh, and it, it's great. It solves that problem where if you have the same local admin password on all your computers, all your servers, if someone compromises one, they can hop to all them. But if you don't also clean out the local administrators group uh, or, or minimize it as best you can, especially on PCs, we'll see things like people nest a group called my domain slash help desk or my domain slash end user support in there. And it's got, you know, tens or dozens or even hundreds of accounts in there. And it's on every single workstation. Well, I had the exact same problem essentially as uh, as Laps was trying to solve. All I need to do is compromise one of those accounts, the credential for it, and I can hop from machine to machine to machine. And uh, you know, to, to your point earlier about achieving that that level of dominance in a in an environment, if I can move around unrestricted, sooner or later I'm going to find something that's useful to let me hop to the next level and the next level and so forth. Um, so so cleaning out the group membership is super important. Uh, sometimes there's a lot of uh, this isn't really necessarily a technical thing so much as a, a business process thing. You've probably been doing you know things like desk side support, help desk support the same way for for years and years and years. And the way some of that's done has to uh, has to change. And for many organizations, the hard part is that change, not so much as the the technical piece. Right, right. Well, we're back to talking about lifecycle again and access reviews and that the the G word governance which has never been a real big, I, I know AD people are always, most IT folks, they're always about setting new things up. They're not going back and making sure uh, that these old things still need to be there. Thanks for joining us on the Hybrid Identity Protection Podcast with Sean Duby. Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Visit hipconf.com, that's H-I-P-C-O-N-F.com to learn about upcoming events, view expert presentations, and take part in the conversation.